You're listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert, and this is a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join me every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. Welcome back, Manufactured listeners. Hope you had a nice summer. In between some much-needed time with friends and family, I've been hard at work preparing season four. Partly for personal reasons, and partly for professional reasons, this season is going to be a little bit different to past seasons. We have a new release schedule, some new guest co-hosts, some new episode formats, and most importantly, Jessie's role will be changing. But fear not, she's not disappearing, and her contribution as co-founder will remain a critical part of the show's DNA. Be sure to check out the short season opener for all the details and a thoughtful message from Jessie explaining some of the challenges she's faced creating this podcast and how she envisions her involvement going forward. Luckily for you and me, she's co-hosting this opening episode. Speaking of the season's opening episode, we're starting off with a pretty special guest, Dr. Divya Gioti. Divya started her career in India in an undergraduate program designed to prepare young professionals for managerial positions in garment factories. But instead of becoming a factory manager or an industrial engineer, Divya found herself working as a sustainability professional before ultimately landing in academia, where she now works as a lecturer at De Montfort University in Leicester in the UK. In this episode, part one of our conversation, Divya tells us more about her inspiring journey and why she began to question the industry's approach to social compliance and sustainability. She tells us how she came to the realization that she didn't actually know how workers experience the codes of conduct intended to make garment factories a nicer place to work. To her surprise, the academic literature didn't seem to have an answer to this question either, and this ultimately became the subject of her PhD. Her thesis was selected for the Society of Business Ethics Best Dissertation Award in 2021. So why does the academic literature fail to consider something as basic as worker experiences of codes of conduct? And how did she endeavor to avoid this pitfall in her own work? In part two of our conversation, which is also out today, she gets into her findings. How do codes of conduct create hidden work for workers on the factory floor? How does something intended to make garment factories a nicer place to work actually end up creating what she calls a time squeeze? And what would be a better alternative? Is the problem with the codes of conduct themselves, or is it how they're implemented? How can activists and labor rights advocates be effective allies? This podcast is a passion project and a labor of love. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that. Divya, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want to kick things off by having you share a little bit about your entry point into the world of fashion and how this led you to what you're doing now. I began as a student in the fashion industry 
uh, you know, so I was studying in National Institute of Fashion Technology, one of the prestigious institutes for fashion studies in India, in New Delhi. Um, so that's where I started. So I was actually studying uh, a degree course in apparel production. It's, you know, it's called Bachelors in Fashion Technology. So my <laughs> my dad always wanted me to be an engineer and I was not interested. So we settled for, you know, not a B-Tech, but a BF Tech. So that's how, you know, the degree came to be. Uh, or I enrolled, you know, for the program uh, because it aligned with my interests. I was not interested. I, I hated chemistry uh, at, at a particular point in time. So that's what I was studying. Uh, what it meant was the kind of modules we looked at were, you know, how the garment manufacturing process, the technique, the technical side uh, also the the fabric manufacturing side of it a, a basic orientation into the uh, designing uh, we also spoke about costing you know and the and the whole uh, retail management uh, side of it so the management and the uh, budget and the financial side of it so it was really a management course uh, so my internships were all about you know so before that i went to different companies i went to arvind i went to raymond and it was all about understanding the uh, the technical processes right so weaving spinning yarn size spindle size uh, sizing you know so all the different processes i know one of my projects was around you know how steam impacts the quality of the yarn so all the technical uh, stuff um uh, and I, I would say t- till that time even my orientation was very technical so i was not really looking at factories uh, as as to the what is the nature of the workplaces per se Although I do distinctly remember um, that, you know, I did go and visit one of the manufacturing units in Delhi. Uh, that was a, a, you know, a orientation. I think uh, we were in the second year at the time. Um, and, and that was making, you know, hot couture garments, uh, you know, gowns uh, for Europe. And that factory, w- now I know that I would classify it as a sweatshop. You know, because of it was in the basement, it was, I mean, I don't know how many people, over 70 people, very crowded. We couldn't really stand there any longer. And I remember that that was, if it, there were really, this was like a major heartbreak. If I, now I put it that way, you know, we, we make sense retrospectively. But now I think that, you know, I, I was really enchanted by the glamour of the fashion industry. And this was really, I mean, I remember in my memory, memory it's an unglamorous, you know, encounter. And the second unglamorous encounter was, I still remember during one of my internships, the production manager slapped the production supervisor. And, you know, this was a reasonably good company. And I still remember that. And that's when I, it was at that moment, I took the decision that I'm not going to join production. It was just a put off, like it was a huge put off for me because I was, I think the only second woman around at the time in the factory, the other person was, um, you know, the HR uh, uh, head and the HR officer in the factory. So that was something which I do remember very distinctly that till that time, you know, I was very inspired and, you know, we had a really nice faculty who used to tell us about, you know, how she in her production manager days, you know, managed the factory. So I was really looking forward to it. But I think after that encounter, something kind of changed and hence began the exploration and the understanding of the entire compliance industry. So to give you a brief recap, after that, I came back. Um, I could have done, you know, I had two uh, opportunities to do my, in our last year, we do graduation projects. So I could have done that with a company, but I decided instead to work with a leading consultancy, which was at the time developing, you know, a tool uh, for a development corporation, the GIZ. So I worked with them and then, you know, came on to work with GIZ. And, you know, after that, there was no looking back. Till we reached a point where I realized that, 
okay, you know, this is all great, but but maybe I need to equip myself more. I need to understand the, you know, uh, the the theory behind, you know, the things we do. I need to kind of take a step back because until then, I had not studied, as you said, I had not studied sustainability. I had studied, you know, apparel production. So it was all learning on the job for me. Uh, so I then uh, decided to do a master's, uh, you know, which was my uh, master's in social responsibility and sustainability with Aston Business School. And then, as I say, um, there were no plans to do a PhD, but the PhD found me. Okay, so let's start. Let's talk about the PhD. So when I read the excerpt of your PhD, there was an exchange with a factory HR manager that ultimately led you to your PhD topic or subject. Can you tell us a little bit about that exchange and why it was such a light bulb moment for you? Yes. So um, what happened was that I was actually, as a part of my master's dissertation, collecting data, which means, you know, I was interviewing um, suppliers and different other industry, uh, you know, uh, representatives, because my master's dissertation focused on understanding the supplier narrative and experiences on CSR, because thus far I had realized that the majority of focus has been on lead firms, you know, all the or the buyer firms. So that is what the project was. And I was, you know, going out there and talking to uh, different actors and one HR manager. And I was talking to him, you know, generally about CSR, uh, codes of conduct, compliances. And then uh, and, and until that point in time, I, I used to believe that, you know, codes of conduct are really, you know, a very, very, you know, I would say useful approach and fruitful approach for the industry. Uh, in fact, the genesis of the work that, you know, CRB was doing, the departure point was, you know, building capacities of factories to be able to implement these standards and codes of conduct uh, in the industry, uh, particularly apparel. Uh, you know, so that, that's where it had started. Um, so that was my, you know, belief system. And while talking to him, he made a remark, uh, which was that, you know, these codes of conduct actually have nothing to do with workers. They do not even come close to factory workers. It, I was just intrigued. I mean, first of all, you know, I, I kind of asked him to, you know, clarify, qualify what he was saying. But he was very, very clear saying, no, it's, it, I mean, this is something that, you know, his view at the time was that, you know, this is just something which, which buyers do for themselves and it's not for the workers. And this just, it just was one, a shock because, you know, I had a particular belief system. I had been working, you know, for six, seven years on, on these issues with a particular uh, approach and idea. So this, this kind of just didn't feel comfortable and I, I and and then also I realized that actually I could not even react to it or have a conversation with him because I had not worked closely enough with workers right so that is that was one moment where I realized that you know I have been doing all this work in the factories implementing projects with workers but I do not really know much about them or their experiences of these initiatives I just believed, I just took it for granted that, you know, these are great for workers because I was told so, you know, that's how it, it was just kind of set up. So I became conscious to that, you know, my inability to be able to comment on that. I became conscious that there was this alternative view that, you know, um, some of the people who are kind of in charge and he was also, you know, he was not just head of HR, he was, he was like head of compliance in, in the factories. And so there is this alternative view. And then when I came back at the time, because I was doing master's, I just thought, okay, you know, uh, one of my, who eventually became my uh, supervisor, but my mentor at the time, he suggested, you know, why don't you just look at the literature and say, you know, what, what, what scholars say. And that's when, you know, I did like an initial review and I could not find much. There were very, there were a handful of studies, you know, which I could count on my fingers, uh, which had actually 
uh, adopted an approach of understanding workers' experiences. So that's where, you know, and then he's like, this makes for a project. Uh, and by the time I was sufficiently interested and thankfully, you know, I, I managed to get a scholarship. So that's how the PhD began. So that's the brief yeah, <laughs> exchange and the encounter which changed my life, I think. Your encounter with the HR factory manager, it makes me smile because I feel like I had a very similar like what he told you, I could imagine myself telling you, except for that maybe unlike him, I had a background in a, in, I mean, in a sense, very different to yours, but in a sense, more similar to yours in the sense that I was coming from a sustainable, you know, a, a, an education or a training that had taught me, let me put it this way. I was ready to give codes of compliance and the way that we approached sustainability as an industry, the benefit of the doubt. And so I went into my job as factory manager, sort of thinking, like, as you just described, thinking, okay, these things are a good idea. And I sort of reflect on that now. And I'm like, if you can't convince an American factory manager with a master's in human rights, that these things are a good idea, who, which garment factory managers or HR managers or whatever their position might be, are you going to convince? When I heard this uh, story from DVA, I found it's very natural to hear what the HR manager said. I found it's very natural. I always think even in my mind, of course, of course, this is not what workers want. But, but here's the funny thing. But then naturally, the next question, what do they want? And awkwardly, I also felt blank. I just felt mm. natural. This is not what they want. And this is, yes, in a sense, Mostly for the buyer's uh, intention. It doesn't mean their intentions are, are wrong or not good. No, their intentions are good. It's just it's designed or it's oriented towards buyer's need, buyer's intention, what they want, what they think is good. Yeah, and it's interesting that kind of like this HR manager that you described, Divya and Jesse and I, like we all sort of intuitively have the same feeling the same interpretation of a situation, although we maybe can't, you know, we don't have the data to prove it. We can't maybe articulate, like you said, Jesse, what do workers want? And even the term workers is problematic in a sense, because it sort of refers to a whole group of people who are very probably diverse and want different things as, as a monolith. Um, but I just think that that's like, that's one of the things to me that really caught my attention about your research divya was that i think that there are you know i would maybe people who haven't you know had the chance to talk to a lot of factory managers might think that this person that you're describing is an anomaly but i i my intuitive sense is that that is not the case so i want to jump into it but before we do can you just briefly explain what a code of conduct is okay <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, so so code of conduct is really um, a document which kind of outlines particular expectations you know um, from the factory now the genesis of that is that you know there is a particular demand um, which buyers have been facing uh, or companies face actually to produce their products in a particular manner uh, and, and and the definition that i'm giving is very specific to the 
you know the fashion industry and the way i've organized i've kind of uh, looked at it in my research just to mention here that there's a vast amount of literature you know codes of conduct can be defined very differently companies can have codes you know in terms of say the conduct of their staff with respect to bribery you know there can be codes of conduct which oversee how contracting should happen so they can be they, can, they are very diverse but the code of conduct that we are talking about are in a supply chain context in a, in the fashion industry where buyers you know outline a particular set of principles which they would like their you know suppliers and the supply chain actors to implement to you know um, produce a product in a particular manner you know and largely it covers a working condition as one component the environmental impact uh, as another and the third largely deals with you know issues of transparency and bribery so the ethics of that relationship between the buyer and supplier um so with that in mind i want to read a quote from um your dissertation and he, and here it goes Codes of conduct studies are largely firm focused and fact and factory workers treated as passive beneficiaries to be protected. Few scholars have noted the active role workers can play in codes of conduct implementation, which in turn has implications for the firms. Even this work, however, neither accounts for nor elaborates workers' experiences. Studies about factory workers have not been carried out with them at best treating them, so workers, as informants, and at worst reducing workers to, abs- to an abstract category. Studies about workers appear to have mirrored the very challenges they have identified when examining codes of conduct practices. Why do you think this is? Why do you think that the academic literature has, you know, or these, you know, the academics out there who are studying codes of conduct have failed to consider how workers experience those codes of conduct. And, you know, is it disinterest? Is it insincerity? Is it lack of access? Would these scholars dispute what you're saying? So there are two, I mean, I'll answer this question in two parts. There are two sets of reasons. One is the theoretical reasons and the other is methodological uh, reasons. What is is theory? Theory is the way we, you know, we see things, right? The way we, uh, which kind of informs the lens and and explains what's going on. What I'm trying to say is that, you know, the theories which have informed uh, and which guide a lot of the existing research, that, you know, inhibits the abilities to see uh, particular phenomena or particular approaches. And a classic example of that is that within the CSR scholarship, um, you know, and and there are several reviews which have been undertaken by, uh, you know, scholars, they have highlighted that there is this institutional theory which kind of dominates, right, uh, the, the existing research. And within that, uh, often what happens because of the particular lens which is being adopted, the interactions, you know, are ignored or workers' agency remains, uh, you know, under-conceptualized or understudied. So that's really one reason, you know, it has to do with the kind of theories which are more prominent in the scholarship. It is, you know, to do with, uh, as they say, the hegemony of the corporation, you know, as some critical scholars would call it. So because of that, you know, these questions often have not been considered. And the other is a methodological reason, because in the studies that I reviewed, the most prominent approach uh, methodologically seems to be, you know, reviewing audit reports. So you want to examine and study, you know, code of conduct and its efficacy or its, you know, how it's delivering or not. And a lot of, you know, scholars have relied on using audit reports. 
then there are some who have undertaken uh, you know a primary research but a lot of it has focused on surveys which again you know doesn't really capture lots of experiences some have indeed you know uh, undertaken qualitative uh, researches but those are dominated primarily by interviews now there it appears to me based on the reading and of course interactions that access is is an issue right getting an access or generating this kind of access and and scholars have written about it because it can often generate one it's not easy to get and secondly it can often generate i would say you know implications also for the workers participating so because of that uh, you know one i mean at least that's what my reading is that one is the lens the way you you see the world right which uh may be responsible for this kind of an oversight and the other is the the methodological limitations of the methods which are being used perhaps because you know uh, access to our workers is not that easy i was uh, i was smiling when i heard the one sentence that uh, one of the materials source is the auditor report i was uh, i was smiling because i was thinking they were not include probably one question is uh, what do you think about those audit do you think this help you <laughs> or not as workers or as everyone we will not answer a question that's not asked maybe this is just the cynic in me is even if you ask would you get like there's so many sort of layers to communicating i it depends probably whether whether you get like a an honest answer probably depends on who's asking how it's being asked and like how you go about addressing all those barriers i don't know but Jesse it's funny that you say that because it also reminds me of our com- a conversation we had with um uh Raymond Robertson who um is an economist and is using social compliance uh, like audit data uh to you know evaluate whether you know conditions for workers are actually improving and he was very open about the fact that you know that that like the data he had access to was insufficient um but that like he didn't as an economist like he didn't have access to you know that that the, that this was the data that he had access to and therefore that was what he was stuck that he was stuck using um and so that that kind of it's funny to hear that now echoed in a very different context if one of the barriers is sort of the world view so to speak or the belief system that researchers are bringing to the table in terms of how they understand these issues how does this ethnographic approach that you've undertaken and maybe you can describe in a little bit more detail what that looks like how does that escape that pitfall so uh, i mean i think i would say analytically my focus was on experience right uh, and and within that i mean ethnography is really a method which allows uh, you know researchers to to understand people's action and their experiences of the world right so it's about trying to understand things as a lot of ethnographers have said from their you know point of view how they see it their understanding so there is this you know recognition where you try and actually spend time uh you know amongst the people you wish to learn more about uh you know and you you know you you observe uh and interact with them uh, to kind of you know um, and understand their understanding of everyday practices so i think when you do that right uh when you when you kind of adopt such an approach then you automatically are you you have to become conscious of your own assumptions right 
I, I had this exercise where I just wrote down, you know, my own assumptions, right, on all of these issues. So it was like a, you know, 10,000 word piece of just capturing my own assumptions, which I was then very, very, which I then analyzed, you know, I took some distance, analyzed them. And then I was very conscious that I do not impose my way of, you know, doing things or the way I perceive things. And which is why when I started, and this was a classic conversation, a lot of the people, you know, asked me in the factory uh, that, you know, what's, what's, what, what do you mean by CSR? You know, like, what's your definition? And I was like, I do not have a fixed definition because I'm not imposing one. You know, we'll, we'll kind of see, you know, what, what emerges. This methodology was, I mean, if I'm honest, and I, some people in the factory did tell me this, that this was their first experience with such an approach, you know, someone who's just sitting and, and just, you know, watching them, observing them. So what did I do was, you know, I shadowed them, you know, as they were going about their everyday activities. I spent time in different parts in the factory, on the factory floor, uh, you know, participating in events, observing their everyday activities, observing closely when audits were happening, uh, you know, so kind of... The, and, and 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 I think that's why this is a very powerful method because often it's not possible to one articulate everything right in an interview setting. Of course, there's a time limitation, and also I feel that you know in an interview setting you make sense of a lot of things retrospectively. You know, as the sense making uh, scholars might even say that you you actually you know give it a narrative right. But when you are in the then and now, right here and now, then you see how things are evolving and shaping. And I think. That's where uh, this 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 approach can be really you know powerful. So on that note, Divya, tell us. So you spent time you as part of your research, you spent time in one or several factories, uh, in, you know, really immersed in uh, the company environment culture. Is that right? So what I did was I, of course, visited multiple factories, but there was one particular factory where I spent most of the time. So it was over in the entire period was, you know, 14 months, but I spent almost yeah three to four months in a single factory. And besides that, you know, there was a lot of I was I was attending industry events. I was, you know, so I, I did my data collection in two parts. But yeah, so I did spend uh, almost three months, more than three months, almost embedded in one particular factory, you know. Uh, trying to you know really immerse myself um, and trying to understand yeah things from the point of view of the workers and really uh, the you know the factory's world and on that note we're going to close part one of this conversation but don't forget to tune into part two which is also out today we get into divya's findings and how codes of conduct create hidden work for workers on the factory floor Thank you for listening to Manufactured. Support the show by following me on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast or sign up for the bi-weekly newsletter at www.manufacturedpodcast.com for an overview of the latest episodes, articles I've recently published, and links to off-the-beaten-path reading. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can make a Patreon donation at www.manufacturedpodcast.com. Last but not least, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes and hit subscribe. This helps other people find the show, and I'd really love your help with that.